Hi there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm Dan, and in case you're joining us for the first time, this is your hyperlocal, progressive podcast. We're all volunteer bringing you news and analysis centered entirely on beautiful Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. June is right around the corner, and all of our local and Senate candidates are going to be trying to get on the ballot. That specifically means for Bay Ridge, the race to fill Pam Harris's vacated seat, which covers Coney Island and Bay Ridge, and our local state senator, which currently is state senator Marty Golden. There are two Democratic primary challengers in the race this year to challenge him. So for the next two weeks, we're going to bring you a quick succession of a couple of episodes interviewing Democratic candidates for those local elections. To kick things off, today we're going to be interviewing Ross Barkin, a former journalist who is now running for the first time to take Marty Golden's Senate seat, that is the 22nd District of the New York State Senate. So today, me and co-host Rachel sit down with Ross and chat with him about what are his main policy points and what does a state senator do? Why are they important? What can they actually accomplish in our neighborhood and what changes can they make? So, without further ado, let's get to Ross. Hey, everybody. Today we're in the studio with Ross Barkin, who's here to talk to us about his New York State Senate campaign. Thanks for joining us, Ross. Thank you for having me. One thing that we would like to start off with is what is a state senator? Because <laughs> a lot of people, they see Marty Golden around and they just see him for the movie theater nights in the park. I don't know if Shaking anyone... Shaking hands and kissing babies. That's the job description, right? <laughs> Should be a small part of it. Unfortunately, for some people, it's the only part of it. State center is interesting. Like most states, we have a bicameral legislature. There's an assembly and a senate. The state senate's the upper chamber, so it has a little more power. There are mm -hmm. less state mm -hmm. senators than there are assembly members. There's 63 across New York State. Hmm. And there's 150 members of the assembly. And the state senate does a few different things. They make laws and they pass legislation, laws that affect us. And here in New York City, what a lot of people don't realize is that state government has a lot of say over how we live our lives, whether it's transportation, our minimum wage, our income taxes, our rent laws, mm -hmm. education, it goes on and on and on. So if you're in the state Senate, you actually have a lot of oversight over a city of 8 million plus people. Mm. And there's a lot of responsibility, particularly those who are in the majority, those who chair committees. Mm. Mm -hmm. And by Senate majority, we mean Republican, even though Democrats still hold a technical majority since the April special elections, um, Simca Felder kind of goes either way. So the Republicans are kind of clinging to survival. They've survived in part because of gerrymandered districts, which they drew themselves. I am running in a gerrymandered district. Yeah. If any of our listeners want to see just how gerrymandered our state Senate district is, we will throw a map up because it's pretty impressive. At some points, I think it's only about a block and a half wide. What a lot of people don't realize is that Republicans have been in the majority in the state Senate with one brief interruption for the last 50 years. Wow. Since the 1960s, Republicans huh. have controlled the upper chamber of the state legislature. The interruption being a chaotic period from 2009 to 2010, which we don't hmm. have to really get into because it gets, <laughs> it gets pretty messy. Um, and now Republicans are really on their last legs as the state becomes increasingly diverse and democratic 
and there are fewer and fewer Republicans, one way they've managed to stay in power is with the help of a breakaway conference of Democrats, one of which is neighboring Bay Ridge and actually has Mm. a very small sliver of Bay Ridge, Diane Savino. And these breakaway Democrats, known as the Independent Democratic Conference, have partnered with the Republicans to ensure they stay in the majority. And this has been happening now for five years. And more people mm. realize this, but but not enough. And even though Governor Cuomo has kind of forced the IDC to join back up with the Democrats recently, the IDC is still holding fundraisers. That's the basics of it. But a state senator has a lot of power. I'll give you an example, education. Mm-hmm. We have the Department of Education, which is under the mayor and the school's chancellor. And mm-hmm. this is a relatively recent uh, invention. We used to have a decentralized school board and we'd have school board elections. And this was up until 2001. Hmm. Under Michael Bloomberg, a new centralized system was created and the Department of Education replaced the old Board of Education, and which is actually a much improved system and has far less patronage and politics than the old system had. But New York City residents had to seek the permission of Albany. It was with the state legislature's permission that Michael Bloomberg was able to centralize the education department and create this new DOE and to eliminate the school boards. And Mm. and that's something that has to get renewed pretty early. Exactly. And and some of you may be following how every year now, because Senate Republicans don't like our mayor, Bill de Blasio, we have to seek permission repeatedly to have the education system we want, which is pretty crazy. Unfortunately, each time this happens, the Republicans have a way of extracting concessions from New York City, one of which in 2014 created a little rule that ensures the city must pay rent for all new charter schools and find space for them. I myself am a charter critic, but the bigger issue there is the, the reason Senate Republicans, Marty Golden included, like the charter schools so much is that the charter industry is a top donor. And that's only going to become more important as Senate Republican control gets more and more tenuous. What do you think about Cuomo trying to bridge the gap between IDC and the rest of the Democrats? So it's a good question. Um, in my former life as a mere full-time journalist, <laughs> I, I wrote a lot on the IDC and state Senate politics, which was one reason I felt encouraged to do this. Mm -hmm. I think Andrew Cuomo is realizing that the IDC is becoming a liability for him, that if you want to have a national profile and be this so-called progressive leader, being governor of a state where Republicans are in the majority and having a major say in what does and doesn't happen in New York, especially in the age of Donald Trump, this is abominable to a lot of people. So this latest deal, which was engineered by Andrew Cuomo, and the Senate Democrats have agreed to it, but I do feel sympathy for them in that Cuomo really put them in a tough spot, and they don't want to seem like the ones who are blowing up a deal. And large unions have backed the plan too. I mean, I'm a big supporter of organized labor, but there's no doubt that some large unions in New York State have played a role in keeping Senate Republicans around because some of them will do good things for labor from time mm. to time. And for many labor unions that have to deal with the governor, they don't want to be on Cuomo's bad side. And so if Andrew Cuomo likes divided government and chaos in the state Senate and Republicans ruling the roost and the IDC, the labor unions will say, okay, if that's the governor's way, as long as we get what we want, that's cool with us too. Mm. And that mindset is changing, again, because of Donald Trump and the realization that we need a strong, progressive New York state. 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, some people aren't evolving as fast as they should be. I didn't realize how long the uh, Senate has been in Republican control. Yeah, and that's really... I mean, when you think New York City, you think blue state, mm-hmm. but you really don't realize it's purple in a lot of its operation. Yeah. That 50 years explains why there yeah. are so many weird relics such as abortion law in New York City and New York State being pretty much unconstitutional. Because it was enacted before Roe v. Wade. Right, and it has not been updated. If you want to get an abortion in New York City or New York State, you're not allowed to have that after 24 weeks unless your life is imminently in danger. But Roe v. Wade includes non-viability. If Mm -hmm. literally it's not a living fetus, it's going to die, you're still not allowed to have an abortion in New York State, which is federally protected. Mm -hmm. But New York... New York, despite its reputation as a progressive bastion or a leader is in fact quite backward. We are among the worst states in terms of voter turnout. We are one of the worst states in terms of campaign finance. Mm. We are stuck in the 20th century. And part of that is because of a Republican majority. Part of that has been, quite frankly, bad governors. I'm a bit of a local history buff. And sometimes I like to tell people, I think the last good governor of New York State was Hugh Carey in the 1970s, who also ironically actually took a lot of power away from New York City, though Hmm. New York City was going through a fiscal crisis. And that's when you talk about home rule, the Erstat law, which was passed in the 1970s, is the reason why we do not control our rent laws. It's up to Albany to decide how rent-stabilized apartments should be regulated or what protections tenants should have in New York City. We were going through a fiscal calamity, and the state really had to step in and rescue us, but that was 40 years ago. And now it's really the other way around. New York City is the engine of New York State without New York City, New York State would probably be a rather dismal place. Nothing against people who live upstate or in the suburbs. It's very Mm. pretty up there, and I have family up there. But in terms of economics, New York City gives so much to the state and gets so little in return. Mm. That, for me, is galling because I grew up here in Bay Ridge, and Marty Golden has been my state senator since I was (laughs) 12, 13 years old. He is part of a conference that has no regard really for New York City because they don't represent it. They don't ride subways. They don't represent tenants. That's part of the reason I want to do this is to really make New York City the center of Albany because I don't think it ever was. So we're going to do it for the first time. And before Marty was state senator, he was council person. Mm -hmm. And For a person that's been there that long, there's a lot of entrenchment, and he doesn't necessarily need to do much more than go around and hold a couple of festivals and light a tree every once in a while for people to remember who he is, but try to remember what legislation has come out of Marty Golden. My experience with Marty Golden is calling his office asking about legislation that was moving through the Senate that day and being told it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) I said, no, no, I'm pretty sure it is. This was the New York Health Act. And at this stage, we do need to move fast. We can't rely on that slowness to solve problems. For example, we are still how many years away from Sandy, and we have gotten nothing done Mm -hmm. in terms of protecting South Brooklyn whatsoever, which was very badly hit. And a lot of those sections are in Golden's district. And Ross, you've got 
some climate change platform stuff that applies to that. So I put out a climate change platform not too long ago. One of my thoughts going into that was climate change, despite the existential threat it poses to everything, hence the word existential, (laughs) it's oddly not discussed a lot in political campaigns. I mean, you watch Hmm. presidential debates that could go by without climate change being mentioned once. I told myself I want to at least run the campaign I would like to see as a journalist Mm -hmm. or as a political observer. And so I said, all right, climate change is going to have to come at the top. So one is ensuring we are moving much more quickly toward eliminate uh, New York State's reliance on fossil fuels. And we are not doing this quickly enough. And I do support pricing carbon. And then Locally, I think that there's federal funding now, but it's not very reliable for a storm surge barrier that would protect Southern Brooklyn. And right now that funding appears to be in jeopardy and the federal government really can't be relied upon. And so I've called for the state to step in and provide some of that funding because we can't wait anymore. And of course, people will say, well, this is expensive. Well, I'll say maybe we can have a few less failed economic development projects upstate, which... Mm. uh, you know, where you give subsidies to some movie studio that never opens, and instead maybe we pay for a storm surge barrier. Also, overdevelopment on the waterfront, and this is something that won't make me friends in the real estate community, but (laughs) I spent three years in Cheapshead Bay. I'm a Bay Ridge guy, but after college, uh, I wanted to try out a different neighborhood and save a little money too. So I got a nice uh, one bedroom, believe it or not, for only $1,100. This was in 2013. Sheepshead Bay, some of it can be affordable. And so I was living there and I was struck by the pace of waterfront development a couple of years after Sandy and seeing a 28-story condo building being built and another one on the site of a diner. And I'm not against development per se, if you're going to be building truly affordable housing, if you're building senior housing. I mean, we do need more housing. We need to increase the housing stock. That's just a fact. What I am against, though, is development that is not smart, that does not recognize the realities in the worst flood zones. Yeah, I remember right after Sandy, I was working with a woman whose father lived at the top of one of those big tower buildings. And they were walking up 20 flights of stairs every day to bring supplies to her 90-year-old parents. You think like a tall building is more resistant to flood surge. No, it kills the elevator and you can't get up there. If you have a senior or something, um, the New York Housing Authority took a very, very long time to get itself back up and running after Sandy as well. And again, Garrison and uh, Marine Park were listed as the non-essential evacuation zones, zone B. Those places got hit with 9 to 12 feet. It's striking to me how little the city and state has prepared us for the next storm. That's a big concern for me. And when I talk to people in the district, they say the same thing. We are not prepared. And you mentioned Marine Park. A lot of people don't think of Marine Park as a place that was impacted by Sandy. It was flooded. Their sewer system was backed up. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of problems. And the question is, A, For the most vulnerable areas, and this maybe would lie outside of the Senate district, I'm thinking more of the Rockaways here, Mm -hmm. why weren't more people bought out? I think there was a missed opportunity to maybe move the most vulnerable people off of the shoreline. They did this a little bit in Staten Island, and the people who left were thankful because they knew they weren't living in a safe place, and they got Mm -hmm. money to start their lives elsewhere. Why weren't we more aggressively buying people out? And now, five years later, why aren't we doing more to protect those who are there? 
And why are we still allowing runaway development on the waterfront? If you're not going to have a complex system of levees and barriers like they do in Netherlands and other places where they've made it sustainable, if that's not going to exist anytime soon, then we can't also be building on the waterfront. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I've seen that the state has been a very, very slight actor in assisting. It's been the city. It's been federal. And if something changes in the New York State Senate, I think the um, South Brooklyn storm barrier is something like two or three billion dollars. That already has been earmarked away at this point. It was supposed to start in 2019. You said the earmarks are no longer available, they right? They spent it all up. They said we were going to start in 2019. Sounds Everyone like in social the social security. <laughs> And the truth be told is that there is money in the state budget to at least partially fund that. But again, it's all about priorities. What are we spending money on? And I'm certainly progressive. I also believe in spending smart too. And this isn't about cutting entitlement, so-called entitlement programs. I don't believe in that. This is about looking at transportation to pivot mm. to the great way the state has screwed us repeatedly, transportation yeah. and the MTA. We just spent a billion dollars with a B on this enhanced station initiative, there's a great op-ed in the Daily <laughs> News about this just uh, this past week. The MTA poured a billion dollars into putting in Wi-Fi and charging ports and some nice artwork. And I love art. I'm a writer. But I also want the trains to run on time. And the idea that the MTA is spending all of this money and spending it toward cosmetic improvements and not on the things that matter is disturbing to me when you asked before, what is the role of the state Senate here? Mm -hmm. The state Senate mm -hmm. has a real watchdog role to play in terms of the MTA as a state authority. The state Senate can hold hearings. The state Senate could start advocating for an audit. The state Senate could maybe ensure that we don't have our transit funds raided by the governor to pay for other things. There are ways that the state legislature can be a guardian for public transportation. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been. And I, I don't want to harp too much on Marty here, but Marty's on the MTA Capital Review Board. And Marty yep. has been MIA on transportation. And well, that's because Marty drives. Because Marty drives <laughs> in bike lanes. But even, but even driving, um, everyone likes to complain about parking. Why haven't we seen anything in terms of alleviating that? Congestion pricing has been consistently shot down. And it would also solve parking. It would solve a good number of things. You know, I was living in London when they put in their congestion pricing and almost overnight, like the number of cars that were going around in central London decreased, the amount of time it took to travel decreased, the revenue went up. Exactly. And there's an argument to be made for congestion pricing that I think transit advocates have to be better at. And I think Dan was getting at it. You sold it to progressives like us who support public transportation, who bike. I drive a car too. I'm a car owner as well. So I have this perspective. You have to make the pitch to car owners. And obviously in Bay Ridge, the pitch is easier because under the current congestion pricing plan, the Verrazano Bridge toll will be cut drastically. And we do have this problem of toll inequity where certain bridges are tolled at ridiculous rates like the Verrazano mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and other bridges are free. You can put tolls on the East River bridges, but also bring down the tolls on other outer borough bridge crossings. And also you can cut down on congestion. You have a lot of people from the outer boroughs who would suddenly find their commutes into the city if they do drive and pay a toll much easier. There would not be so much traffic and it would be better for the environment. And also when Dan mentioned parking, 
one idea that I have been very interested in and has been tried out in other cities is a residential parking permit, mm-hmm. a way this would be open to anyone who's a resident of New York City for any amount of time. Only those people can park overnight. And this is done elsewhere. And this could maybe alleviate the problem of hunting an hour for a parking space would keep commercial vehicles off the street overnight, which is a major, major problem. And Ubers and a lot of these cars that come from outside the neighborhood and are stashed here. Even as close as Hoboken, I've seen what they've done is have one side of the residential street. You have to have a residential parking permit to park on the side of the street overnight. They'll ticket anyone who's not a resident who's parked there. And even in New York City, we've had brief little flirts with it. Um, around the Barclay Center in Yankee Stadium specifically, mm. where it was so hard. And DOT is like, yeah, this seems like a good idea. And San Diego does this. DC does this. Combined with congestion pricing. Well, and hopefully it stops this thing of like, I have a friend who says if she's not parked in Bay Ridge by 1 p.m. on a Sunday, forget it. She's like, she's not going to find parking. Yeah. And let's be clear, like something like this won't solve parking. Yeah. But what it will do is it will alleviate that pressure because People have lived in Bay Ridge for 20, 30, 40 years and known that the parking has always been bad. Mm. But we can keep it from getting worse. We can plateau it. Yeah. It's definitely gotten worse. And I think there are a variety of reasons why. So yeah, with congestion pricing, you sell it to the person with the van and say, okay, you have to drive into the city. You know how horrible your commute is right now between um, all the cars in the central business district. The proliferation of four hire vehicles. I'm one of the few Mm -hmm. people Mm. running for office young people who is not pro-Uber. I'm not against Uber existing. I think they have to follow the rules that the taxis do where there are too many vehicles on the streets of New York City. We have a finite Mm. amount of space. Congestion is increasing. The taxi industry is greatly flawed. I'm not a fan of taxi kingpins by any means. But I think we also have to get serious. And I have a lot of issues with the mayor, but I give the mayor credit for at least trying to do this a few years ago, looking at the number of four hire vehicles on the street and going, okay, what is the maximum number allowed? At what point do we hit critical mass and go, this is turning into what it was in the 1930s when they instituted the medallion system, Hmm, which was when taxi cabs were running amok. And LaGuardia stood up and said, we have to keep these streets somewhat clear. And they created this imperfect medallion system, but the medallion system at least capped the number of vehicles. Yeah. yeah. And this is something I'm interested in pursuing. It would be a city issue. It could be a state issue too, because the truth to be told is the state wants to do anything. It can override New York City. And we yeah. saw this with the plastic bag. <laughs> that feels uh, great. <laughs> surcharge. The state legislature cares enough. It can usurp the city on, on virtually any matter. And it's not just about cars on the road. Putting that medallion system in place, however corrupt the distribution of those medallions are, those taxis are very valuable. You don't park them overnight. You bring them back to a lot and they're cycled through. I wonder how many Ubers and Lyfts are just sitting overnight. Mm, I agree. And I I don't think enough people are cognizant of the fact, since they aren't so clearly marked, that we have lost a large amount of parking to for hire vehicles because they can write that you can stash them anywhere and thinking about progressively on public transportation policy you mentioned buses how horrible buses have gotten yeah. but this speaks to the congestion problem it all fits together how do we make buses move faster to get people on and off quickly all door boarding which is starting to happen you can sync up traffic lights yeah. so buses get priority and also alleviate congestion 
I would urge congestion pricing proponents, and I am one myself with the caveats of this toll money must go to transit improvements and nothing else. And if you don't have the lockbox, I do not support congestion pricing, but if you get me that, you've got me. I would say to the full-blown proponents, make the argument for the buses too. People in the outer boroughs take really, really, really slow buses that are only getting worse. It seems like the DOT has done is um, incremental improvements to street infrastructure. And people always say like, oh, an incremental improvement, it ruins the street. Like now I have a bus lane. I can't have a driving lane. Where am I going to deliver goods? How is my business going to suffer if, I, if a bus is running by? But that's not stopping anybody in Bay Ridge. You've got double parking three cars deep. Like. <laughs> the thing is, I think there's more yeah. to be done. For example, Paris, I was just researching this a little while ago because I'm mm-hmm. a crazy wonk. And one of the interesting things they did is added a delivery lane hmm. by cutting about four or five feet, the width of a tree, the length of a semi truck into the sidewalk. So the sidewalk actually bumped in a little bit and you could park, deliver goods, and it was enough room for a bus to maneuver around it. And then what they would do is they would distribute delivery licenses. If you ran a delivery company, you had a delivery placard and you could park in those delivery zones. And that solved a huge number of problems. We need to focus on just renovating our entire street infrastructure. And on deliveries, we have a lot of congestion because there are more and more trucks and vans delivering goods for people at all hours of the day because everything is on demand, whether it's Amazon or whether it's food. Maybe shifting to a system of overnight deliveries, and this is certainly controversial too because people would hear noise at night, but it could conceivably free up the streets during the day. It's something that's been discussed, and I have been intrigued by it changing when deliveries happen because right now our city and our borough is at a pivot point. There's a bright future ahead. I also think there are a lot of problems we could be facing. And this problem of congestion is more and more of a challenge on so many different levels. And I hope that from the mayor on down, state lawmakers, we can all start to think about this problem in a holistic way and not pit groups against each other and make the other side understand, look, A bus lane is going to make your life better too. This may seem like a price you're paying to go into Manhattan, but here are all the other things and all the other ways your life is going to be made far more easy. That's very important to communicate, and I hope advocates and others can do that. Another thing that's woefully underutilized, talking about transit and specifically cutting down on trucks, we have what's called the Bay Ridge Line of the LIRR. It's my transportation Mm platform oh yeah the, the tribe the, the triborough you're talking about the triborough yeah the triborough that's Talk about the, this. i i got a few i got a few transit wonks excited that the very first platform i put out was transportation and in the midst of my gloom and doom on the mta and was like <laughs> hey here's a really fairly inexpensive way to profoundly change how we get around the city and we don't have to build a new train line. We can have a new train line. And people go, how? <laughs> well, there's a, there's a freight line that exists. We have the right of way. And it would run from Bay Ridge through central and eastern Brooklyn up into Queens and Astoria and up into the Bronx. This was an idea proposed by the RPA back Mm. in the 90s to make this freight line into a passenger train line, a a subway line. And again, it would start probably in Bay Ridge, right at the northern end of Bay Ridge and could run 
throughout Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx and would... Those are those train tracks? Yeah, well, if there? you're on the R train and you have that little brief moment where you get to see outside yeah. Yeah. for oh, a second, okay. that's the yeah. 65th Street train yard. It used to run freight over the harbor. Um, right. It's called a rail float. They would have a little barge that had rails on it. It would park up to the rail line and the train would actually unload a couple of cars onto what? the barge. The barge would float across the river. What? And it would float over to Greenville in New Jersey. The cars would roll off the barge and be reattached to a train. And that's how you would get freight across because where's that's the so next rail crossing? It's all the way upstate. Bay Ridge used to have a really good stevedore community, working class communities to move freight across. And then use that with passenger transit. And the key part of that is you could still have freight and passenger work together. The infrastructure exists to do that. One issue with the Triborough is there's been this push for the Cross Harbor Freight Tunnel, which has been a priority of mm. uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler. And so there's always been opposition to taking away any freight on this line. But a lot of engineers will tell you, you can have freight and you could have passenger trains. You can do oh, yeah. both. And it would be relatively inexpensive compared to what we just spent on the 2nd Avenue subway and what mm. <laughs> we're going to be spending to bring that train a couple more stops up to East Harlem. We could have a train line that radically changed how people get around the city and make the lives of millions of people a lot better. Unfortunately, it's never really caught on. I remember Scott Stringer at one point when he was mm. He's running for mayor at the time, then switched to run for controller. He floated it briefly. And so I hope as an elected official, if I get there, to really push the triborough and get the conversation going again. I'd only be one person, but I would be a voice for that. And I would try to organize a coalition and really get people thinking seriously about it again, because it should be done. It needs to be done. And we need better outer borough transit. Yeah. Well, and I imagine that's another place like when we talked about education and schools in the district of the Justin, where an organized progressive grassroots movement to get that to happen could only make that job easier. And hey, anyone in Marine Park or Gerritsen, your commute time to the Bronx would be cut by, I think, like 30 to 40 minutes or Jeez. more. Yeah, it's insane because it connects the boroughs together. Mm -hmm. So in the last session of the assembly, I believe it was, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, they had pushed the New York Health Act through the assembly and then it stalled mm -hmm. out in the Senate. I earlier made a reference to calling Marty Golden's office and being told the day of the vote that the vote wasn't happening that day. What I thought was interesting about that specific legislation is that it rested a lot on federal programs. And as we're seeing the federal programs being eroded, those costs would be taken up by the state, I assume. You've got you know universal health care as part of your platform. What are your thoughts I'm there? I'm a longtime proponent of universal health care, Medicare for all, as the Bernie Sanders campaign rechristened mm -hmm. it. I think intelligently, <laughs> and it's a branding I picked up on because it's a good way to explain what this would be. We have legislation, as as you said, that has passed the assembly now several times that has never gotten a hearing in the state Senate because, again, Republicans have no interest in bringing the New York Health Act up for a vote. Mm -hmm. The votes are nearly there to pass it. I think we elect a few more Democrats, uh, hopefully myself included, and we get that legislation done. Mm-hmm. It would create a single-payer healthcare system for New York State. It would make it so we are no longer at the mercy of private predatory health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry. It would give us profound negotiating power and leverage power over drug prices. It would certainly 
be expensive in the short term, but it would ultimately lower our healthcare costs drastically and would be very feasible because we have the tax base to do it. Often when people bring up single-payer healthcare in states, they look at Vermont and they go, well, it couldn't happen in Bernie Sanders, Vermont. How could it happen anywhere else? And I go, and other people are much smarter than me go, well, because Vermont has less people than three Brooklyn assembly districts. The tax base did not exist in Vermont to do this. In New York, we are blessed with a lot more people, people with incomes. We can certainly pay for this. There are countries with single-payer healthcare systems with less people than New York who have very sustainable healthcare networks. And I believe it's both the moral thing to do. And I also think it's feasible because our healthcare system and conservatives and progressives and everyone in between will tell you it's dysfunctional and it's terrible and it puts profit over everything else. And it's it's nonsensical where one year my father's a senior, he's a type one diabetic, his insulin price just shot up dramatically last year. Luckily, he can still pay for it. He has a good pension, but a lot of people can't. I was like, dad, why did it go up? And he's like, there was no reason because insulin is not a new drug. There's no reason it became more expensive this year. It's just the capriciousness of these pharmaceutical companies. And, and when I talk about healthcare and healthcare is a right and not a privilege, I find this is something that resonates with people of all ideological stripes. Our healthcare system is so arbitrary and so punishing for everyone, certainly low-income people, middle-income people too, and even upper middle-income people. I mean, you're one injury away, one healthcare mess away from being bankrupt. And we have to move off this system. And if the federal government is not going to do it, and with Donald Trump and the White House, don't hold your breath, and and maybe even for the next president, or I hope as a Democrat or a sane person, at least. (laughs) We uh, don't ask for much these days. It's not not a guarantee. It, It didn't happen. We couldn't even get a public option in 2010. And a public option would have helped stabilize the Obamacare markets. And I'm not a huge fan of Obamacare. I think it was a step in the right direction. But I've dealt with the healthcare exchanges and conservatives have a lot of ridiculous complaints about Obamacare or things they say or blame Obamacare for. But one area where they are kind of right is that, look, it was a system that was set up to benefit insurance companies. And it was a system that could not really succeed without these subsidies and really without a public option. But we never got the public option to compete with those private insurance companies. And because we didn't get a public option, we're in this weird place where we have a healthcare system um, with Obamacare that has really helped a lot of sick, low-income people, which is wonderful. But overall, the system still is not working, and the Republicans are undermining it. And, and that's what they want to do. They want it to fail. Uh, unfortunately for them, they're in power now, and people will blame them for Obamacare's collapse. They won't blame a president who's not in office anymore. That's just how politics are. So for me personally, when I started this campaign, I said uh, healthcare has to be at the top of it because healthcare affects everyone. And and it's such a broad, important issue. And it's so fundamental to how we live. And again, like I said, it's a moral issue. We we need free to very affordable healthcare and we have to do it as soon as possible. As well as being a moral issue, it is a economic issue in terms of the fact that like right now, I don't know about you guys, I'm paying a lot of money per month. And I think a lot of our listeners are. If you have universal health care, that suddenly frees up all these dollars we're spending on our premiums, on our out-of-pockets. And let's just put that back into the economy. 
And also it frees up a lot of businesses yeah. who spend a significant amount of their Entrepreneurs, time. yep. The, yes. The, Freelance this, journalists. <laughs> yes. What's left out of the healthcare debate often, I find, is the pitch to people who aren't progressive who go, okay, you own a small business. You complain about government interference. You complain about your tax burden. Well, here's a system that will allow you to <laughs> never have to pay healthcare for your employees ever again. It's going to become the government's problem. And you can tell the most right-wing small business owner or big business owner, tell them, look, like we're going to create a system where you will not have to pay the healthcare costs of your employees anymore. And they'll go, oh, wow, that's really? I'm like, yeah, it's called, <laughs> called universal healthcare and we can do it. And all of a sudden you got to convert because it's sensible and it's something, we, again, we really have to do. And we don't talk about how much that constricts small businesses from wanting to grow mm -hmm. because once you hit a certain number of employees, you do have to take care of all of those healthcare concerns. Yeah. So a small business that's like, you know, running around in Bay Ridge or Marine Park or mm -hmm. Gravesend with universal healthcare, that barrier is kind of unlocked for you. You can scale up as you need mm. yes. without suffering a sudden spike of costs that you suddenly have to deal with because you moved from 10 employees to 11 employees. That's really interesting because that kind of reminds me of the struggle of people who make just under the amount that would disqualify them from receiving things like SNAP or welfare or that and they're not making enough to survive. But if they go up over that, whatever that threshold is, they're still not making enough to survive and they lose their benefits. Exactly. And the issue is with Medicaid, if you make just enough to not qualify for Medicaid, your life gets demonstrably worse because you're not getting this very affordable health care. And Medicaid's not perfect. I mean, a lot of providers and doctors will refuse Medicaid. And, and I think that's wrong. But it's a great safety net to have. And I, I think we could all agree here. And I think more Americans agree that we have to expand the safety net and we have to really ensure everyone, whoever you are, has access to this highly affordable health care. So you can pursue the job opportunities you want to. You can open the businesses you want to. You can provide for your family. You cannot live in fear of getting sick. You can not have to decide between paying rent or paying a healthcare bill. And, and it's insane. You tell people in other countries in America, we have to make these choices. And they go, why? I mean, do, do you have to pay for your uh, going to eighth grade? Don't you have a public school that's free? And we go, well, yeah. So why don't you have a healthcare that's free too? And, and we go, well, I don't know. <laughs> and, well, we know why. It's because insurance companies make a lot of money and it's a billion dollar industry. That's the sad history of it. It's a capricious and nonsensical system. And the good news is a lot of people in the political realm recognize this. And single-payer healthcare has moved from the fringes to the mainstream. I think that was a great development of the Bernie Sanders campaign. And one thing I loved about it was it took what as recently as 2013 or 2012 was a radical lefty idea. <laughs> and now you have people like Cory Booker supporting it. And that is the beauty of a good political campaign, a campaign that can advance ideas and move people and putting that at the forefront and seeing how people reacted. It really showed a lot of politicians that you can embrace these ideas because most politicians don't lead on things. They wait for it to be deemed acceptable and then jump on. So I'm thankful that Universal health care is now deemed acceptable, though it should have been a long time ago. 
Yeah, and we still have some people who haven't jumped on that bandwagon, specifically in our district, (laughs) specifically Marty Golden. How long can we have a person in our state Senate who, the only thing I can think of that he does with his power is kill legislation rather than... Mm sponsor or recommend it. It's interesting because I very often will start just like paging through the voting records of different politicians and of all the ones in our district, I don't think I can actually name anything from Marty Golden. It's like there's just nothing that sticks. That's even benefited us. Uh, You you can't just say that you're going to be the bulwark to keep change from ever happening in this district. It needs change. It's needed change for a long time because all of our neighborhoods that encompass Golden's gerrymandered mess... (laughs) They've complained about the same problems for decades and decades. <laughs> yeah. And someone in the state Senate hasn't been listening What's to them. What's the definition of insanity again? <laughs> so one of the things that came up at one of Representative Donovan's recent coffee events, which I think it was the one in Gravesend, there was a kid who got up and said, oh, you know, do you support the Excelsior Scholarship? And Dan didn't know what that was, so I kindly explained it to him. <laughs> for those of our listeners who aren't aware, it's a state program that funds education for children and families earning under, I want to say, 125K a year. That might be a little bit off. But one of the problems with it is that it funds only for full-time students, and it doesn't fund things like textbooks and other corollaries. And you have to stay in New York State after you graduate, or else they can bill you for after after the fact fact. it's like five for five years or something right it's really odd and scary that if you got your dream job in jersey city you would be on the hook for the excelsior Mm. scholarship i personally i kind of get that part of it mostly because when i was in scotland they had a thing where if you graduated from a scottish university you could stay in scotland for two years but you couldn't go to england you had to stay in scotland and i get the rationale of like we're investing in the future and that's an opportunity for those students to then work within the new york state economic sphere but your point about Jersey is well taken. Yeah, I, the Excelsior Scholarship, when it was announced, I was there, I covered the announcement with Bernie Sanders. Um, it was actually almost a year ago, exactly. I remember it was a cold, really yucky day at LaGuardia Community College, and I went up there, and it, it seemed great, and it was exciting, and wow, like this is going to change everything. As both of you said, It is a program that is good for full-time students and not part-time students, and it's fine if you've exhausted all of your scholarship money and need one more bit to make up the rest, then it's helpful. For a lot of people, it's not going to make much of a difference, especially for working and low-income people who do not go full-time. They're often working jobs during the day and attending school at night or they're taking five years to graduate or six years to graduate. And if you're working, you're supporting a family, you should be able to take five or six years. doesn't make a difference. If you get the degree, you get the degree. So for me, the Excelsior was a real bait and switch, and I thought it could be much stronger. And, and I haven't liked what the governor has done with public education in general. He's playing games with the CUNY funding not long ago. Mm. I don't think our state and city universities are funded enough. And if we're talking education on on the high school level and below, we're owed money from the campaign for fiscal equity lawsuit going back to the mid-2000s that Andrew Cuomo refuses to comply with. Is that that whatismyschoolowed.com? Yes, that is. Yes. Um, So we're we're owed money from that. And my background too, before I got into journalism, before I got into political forays, I was studied to be an English teacher. And so that, that was my degree in English education. And I was a student teacher and I substituted at Fort Hamilton for a little while. Right. 
until um, I got my first journalism job. And so I learned a lot about education, had experience with it myself. And one thing I didn't like from Governor Cuomo, particularly in the first term, was how he would seem to demonize teachers or put everything on standardized testing. And I remember mm. having, having had to teach to a tests and having taken tests myself. I am a real critic of that. I think we can have much more progressive education policy in the state and we're not getting it to the degree that we should. That all being said, um, the Bernie Sanders tuition-free initiative, I did like it. I did have some logistical concerns with it, more so than with um, universal health care, because you'd have to consider, is this just tuition? Is this housing? Also, should high-income students have a subsidized public school education? And yeah. we certainly do that for public schools on the high school level. We have some great public schools that in New York City and in the suburbs and wealthy parents who like the school will send their kids there instead of private school. So I see both arguments there. I mean, I do, I think, in theory, at least, or in my heart, support the idea of free education for everyone. Because I do think the system we have is madness with people being crushed with student loans for 30 years and, mm. and, and the way these companies prey on the ignorance of young students. We have to change that. And again, that goes back to the same thing about medical coverage. It's like if people don't have those 30 years of crushing loans, they can get on the property they ladder. Can do other things, right. And so I think at the minimum, we have to ensure our CUNYs and SUNYs remain affordable. And the state legislature has been hiking SUNY tuition now, keeps inching up and up and up. I would like that to stop. We should be treating our teachers in primary and middle school and high schools a lot better. I'm paying them more. And college too. I mean, the adjunct world is a terrible world to be in. I briefly, when I, I thought about going for a PhD and I never did, I thought about that and seeing how tenure track professor jobs have evaporated and how the entire higher education world is just really, really poorly paid adjuncts taking on huge course loads to teach students who you have a student body who isn't served by the system and you have an adjunct body that is certainly abused by this system. And I would like that to change as well. And these are all tall orders, but these are also things the state legislature and the governor can do because again, the state really does control just about everything. I can't think of a thing that only the city has that the state can't put its little grubby fingers in. <laughs> How fragmented do you think Democrats are across the state? Like, you know, we see a lot of infighting in the House in the national government right now amongst Republicans who should be able to pass a lot of horrible legislation real quickly. Um, <laughs> how far apart do you think Democrats across the state are if we got control of the state legislature? I actually don't think they're that far. I mean, we have the IDC Democrat divide, and that, that's a big issue. Within the Senate Democratic Conference now, there's actually a lot more um, unity than there used to be. It's a younger conference. Maybe all now of the most corrupt Democratic state senators have gone to prison or, or wow. left. <laughs> that's, that's how you know you got a good state you've legislator, got, cleared, folks. There's been, a, there's been a lot of dead weight has been cleared out. So actually, I feel a lot better about the state Senate. Uh, one of the reasons I'm running, too, is that I wouldn't be ashamed to join this body because right. there are some very good legislators there. Uh, I think in terms of voters, in terms of activists, in terms of what the party wants, the priorities are becoming pretty clear. That There's definitely a movement toward the New York Health Act and a movement toward strengthening our reproductive health laws and a mm -hmm. movement toward the DREAM Act. Um, there's agreement even among centrist Democrats that 
we need these things or we have to fight for these things. And so I don't think you'd wave a magic wand and in the 2019 session, all the things you ever wanted would come to pass. And (laughs) some activists may be disappointed, but I think what you will see are basic reforms happen quickly. And I'm thinking about changes to our voter laws, which could happen Mm. very quickly. I I saw something today about de Blasio signing into law something to allow online voter registration in New York City. Yes, which he should have done sooner, but that, that's <laughs> reforming the BOE is also a state priority, which has not remotely been taken up by the governor or the state legislature. And I despise the BOE, and I think it's a patronage ridden uh, crap hole. And they're full of shenanigans. <laughs> won't say the other word. Monkey uh, shines. <laughs> I think Democrats in general in New York State now, if the governor can really get on board with a progressive state, and I think maybe he can, and I hope he can. I do believe we are in a better place. And I say we, which is funny because I actually <laughs> wasn't even a Democrat until that long ago. And that's, I, was oh, a really? journal- I was a journalist. I was registered yeah. Democrat for a little while. Then I kind of became independent again, sort of as I got into journalism. Right. And then I thought about becoming registered Democrat again because I wanted to vote in primaries. Actually, right. not because I had any inkling to run for the seat. It really was. I wanted to get into voting in primaries, and then I registered too late to vote in the 2017 primary, Uh. which is a problem many of us have had. So here I am now. I'm a progressive person. I'm also someone who's willing to criticize and stand up to Democrats when they do wrong. And there are not enough Democrats who can do that. And I'm proud to say that I do and will continue to. I was going to say, I feel like that's something that more and more grassroots activists are finding ourselves like, well, I'm, I'm a Democrat, but I'm going to pull them left. <laughs> right. And one of the things when we've spoken to and we've heard from some of our more local politicians is how people in local government can stand up to the federal government and what kind of policies they can pass in New York State. And I know just the other day, you know, we were talking about kind of community boards being able to make declarations. I imagine at the state legislature level, there's a lot more practical stuff that can be done to kind of fend off encroaching federal legislation. I think the best thing that can be done is passing good policy on the local level. That's the Mm -hmm. answer to make New York a saner, more progressive place. So it's not so much about nullifying every federal law because that creates the vicious cycle of when, okay, when the Democrats are in power, the Republicans then try to nullify federal power. We go we, we go back and forth and everyone is a states rights activist when their party is out of power and then they become believers in the federal government again when their party's in power. <laughs> but I think what it is about is we have a lot of control over our state. We have a lot of laws we can pass. There's a lot we can do. New York State really is a, a country unto itself in terms of the size of its people and our budget. Um, we can pass better bills and get better things and make this place much more livable. We're not there yet in so many ways, and we can be, and, and we're not far away. That's why I'm excited to run and to really do this is because I do believe it, with a few different people in power, we can really start to push our state and our city in a much more progressive and reasonable direction because what we have now is not reasonable. Our voter laws, our transportation, our healthcare, our immigration laws, they're so backward. It's about pulling really New York into the 21st century because we aren't there. And I hope within a few years, maybe five years, and we can be in a very different place and be caught up to other states and we can finally be a state that is looked upon as an example and is no longer a laughingstock. 
because yeah. anyone who really pays attention to New York politics will quickly start laughing. And <laughs> I don't want that to keep happening. I, yeah. I want that to change. I'm tired of having a state senator who makes a mockery of our terrible laws and exploits them to the hilt. And we have work to do. We have a lot of work to do. But the good news is it's reasonable, feasible work. It's not utopian work. It can be done. And it can be done with good people in elected office. And that's why I do believe in engaging in the political process and, mm. and why I, I have been that way for a while, because that's where power lies. And Republicans understood that for a long time. And I think Democrats and progressives are understanding that too. I, for one, am really looking forward to seeing uh, someone from Southern Brooklyn in the Senate that is actually passing and creating and building things mm. rather than just blocking them to finally see Bay Ridge, Diker Heights, Bensonhurst, Bath Beach, Gravesend, Marine Park, Garrison Beach, and Manhattan Beach. Sheepshead Bay. And Sheepshead Bay. A little sliver, sliver. <laughs> I'd love it's, to it's see... It's hard to name all the neighborhoods because it's like... It's so, it's so gerrymandered. But I'd love yeah. to see those neighborhoods in the news for mm. something positive. We can't spend any more time just not moving forward. The more we deny our problem... And the more we say, no, 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 it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's going to get better on its own, it's not going to get better well, on that its goes, own. That goes back to kind of my constant refrain of the cavalry isn't coming. You are the hero you've been waiting for. You know. Ross, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I really I enjoyed this a lot. It was great just sitting down and we covered so much. Yeah, so yeah. this is going to set a bar for, I think, a lot of our interviews to come. <laughs> so thank you again. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Just so you guys know, June 5th is the first day for signing designating petitions for our state and local offices. That includes Ross. If you'd like to volunteer or get involved, head over to rossbarkin.com. That's R-O-S-S-B-A-R-K-A-N.com. You could also find him on Facebook or Twitter at at Ross Barkin. If you want to check out any of the show notes from today's episode, head over to www.radiofreebayridge.org. And of course, if you have any ideas for new episodes, want to get involved or volunteer, shoot us an email or engage with us on Facebook or Twitter at Radio Free BR. And also on June 3rd is the Fifth Avenue Festival and Radio Free Bay Ridge is going to be there. We'll have a booth set up with microphones and we'll be taking people's stories for an oral history project that we've been working on. Even if you don't have a favorite Bay Ridge memory to share, just swing by, say hi and chat with us. We'll all be down there, including me, Rachel, Mary, our education correspondent, Eric, and the newest member of the Radio Free Bay Ridge team, Brian Hedden, who's actually just joined us as a transportation correspondent and content expert. So swing by and talk about the neighborhood. We'll be down on Fifth Avenue from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Be sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, especially because the next episode coming up is going to be Andrew Gennardis, who is in the exact same race as Ross. And after that, we'll be speaking with Mathilde Frontis, who's running for the 46th Assembly District that includes Coney Island and parts of Southern Bay Ridge, pretty much everything below the 70s. But until then, enjoy the sunshine, everyone, and stay free, Bay Ridge. <laughs>